So, clicker. <coughs> yeah, be good. Thank you. So we've just read that account, or at least we've heard it read by Rowan, of an account of Jesus' res- rec- resurrection as recorded in John's Gospel. And it typically is an account which we read with excitement and joy as we're reminded once more of that first Easter morning, where it finally becomes clear that death did not have the last word in Jesus' life, and that in him neither will it have the last word in ours. Easter morning is a day of joy, when something that happened 2,000 years ago or more now continues to illuminate our lives of faith right up to today, 2023, here in Milford, England. After the agony and the sorrow of Good Friday, we can rightly rejoice that through Jesus' obedient suffering and self-giving love, a new day has dawned, a day on which the sun will never set. So join with me once more and say these words on this slide. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Give thanks to the risen Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Give thanks to his name. But now having said that, and recognising that Easter is a time very much of joy, I want us to pay attention this morning to a central part of this passage that doesn't have an awful lot of joy in it, actually, if we're honest. Verses 10 to 18 is a passage right in the middle of John's resurrection narrative, this tremendous narrative, which is the pinnacle of John's gospel. And right in the middle, we have these verses which seem more to do with grief and with tears than with joy. And we're talking here about the tears of Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene was a woman who, according to the the gospel writers, travelled with Jesus as one of his followers and was a witness both to the crucifixion and to the resurrection. She is mentioned by name more than 12 times in the Gospels, which is more than most of the apostles, by the way, and more than any other woman apart from Jesus' mother, Mary. In Luke chapter 8, Mary Magdalene is listed as one of the women who helped support Jesus' ministry out of their own resources, so she obviously had some level of, of wealth. And the same passage also records uh, that there were seven demons driven out of, her, out of her life by Jesus. She clearly became a devoted disciple of Jesus and one who was very thankful for all that he had done for her. But back to our reading today, twice in our reading, and those middle verses in John 20, Mary gets asked the same question, firstly by angels in chapter 13, and secondly by Jesus in, sorry, verse 13, and secondly by Jesus in verse 15. And the question quite simply is, woman, why are you weeping? Why do you cry? Now, it's a witness of scripture to these very real tears of Mary Magdalene that we can quite easily skip over in our Easter morning resurrection zeal. We can say, oh, well, doesn't that belong on Friday? What's it doing here on Easter Sunday? But we need to take care because whenever scripture repeats something, it's almost like an emphasis being made. And this this question gets asked repeatedly by the angels and by Jesus. And I think John is pointing us to something here that he wants us to pay attention to, which is relevant to Easter Sunday. 
relevant to the resurrection narratives. And also, I don't know, I'm English, and I know most of you are English, but not all of you. Um, the English have a bit of a reserve when it comes to things of weeping and tears and whatever. We tend to rather do it in private. Uh, but we need to be careful as well. We don't push scripture aside because it's just a little bit culturally uncomfortable. And there's a little danger here that we might do that. And maybe as English men, we might be more likely to do that than the women who are present. We need to ask the question, what is the word for his Lord, for the Lord for his word seeking to teach us here? So I'm just going to quickly recap those verses just to set the scene, and then we're going to sort of dive a bit deeper, hopefully. We read in verse 10 uh, that after the disciples had seen the empty tomb, they returned to their homes. But Mary, who's probably now alone, stayed outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she bent over, looking into the tomb, and she sees two angels sitting there, one at the head and one at the foot of where the body of Jesus would have been. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she answers them saying, they have taken my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. And when she has said this, she turns around and she sees a man standing there in the garden. But she does not initially recognize him as being Jesus. And this gardener also asks, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Still thinking he was the gardener, she replies, Sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've laid him and I will go and get him. And it's only then as Jesus utters one more word, her name, Mary, does she recognise him and cries out in their native Aramaic tongue, Rabboni, teacher. Mary reaches out to him in surprise and delight. Jesus has to tell her not to hold him in that way but she is just overjoyed. How long Mary remained in the garden with Jesus, we don't know, but lastly in verse 18, we are told that she returned to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things that Jesus had said to her. So this is the little middle part of this reading that Rowan gave us. So this is right, right in the middle. It's a story of a woman who's clearly a devout follower of Jesus. Though she came with other women to the tomb, when they left, she remained. She insisted on remaining by the tomb, continuing to hope, hope against hope, that somehow she would find his body there. The other disciples, seeing the evidence that he wasn't there, the evidence before their eyes, have left. But Mary doesn't give up into just what she sees or doesn't see. She remembers instead the words of her Lord regarding his return. These are recorded in Matthew 26 for us. Mary did not probably understand these words, really, and probably understands them even less now in front of the tomb. And she's witnessed his gruesome death on the cross. Nevertheless, she continues to believe in what he has said, believing in his word. And these are the words... Matthew 26 and verse 30, we're told, once they had sung a hymn, they went out onto the Mount of Olives. This is the disciples and those gathered around Jesus. There Jesus said to them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you 
into Galilee. For here's Mary. She doesn't understand, as it were, with her head, but her heart and her hope will not let her abandon the Lord's words to her, even now, when they seem totally implausible, unlikely. And as this is to reward her for her faith, that she is the last person standing, as it were, in this place of trust, Jesus arrives in person and addresses her with that question. A gentle word, both of comfort and compassion. Woman, why are you weeping? What is hurting you? What is deep inside your heart that brings you to such tears? I think Jesus' question is a sign of his loving presence and attention, but it is also a rather uncomfortable question to be asked, to find the why of our tears, whether they're physically shared or not, those tears, means to focus on those things which we have hidden deep down in our hearts, away from the prying eyes of others. It's strange, isn't it, that even though it's objectively tragic, uh, we often find it quite difficult to shed tears for, you know, for example, hundreds of refugees who die every day in this world. Whereas, obviously, if a close family member dies or is in danger, obviously, it's much more easy to weep for them. Just as Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman of the well, Jesus asked a question here that probes Mary's heart and hopefully through his word probes ours too. Where is your treasure? What have you lost that so saddens you? What do you hide so deep down in your heart that it causes you to weep when you have lost it? Tears aren't unusual in the, in the Gospels. We have many accounts with the sinful woman at the feet of Jesus in Luke 7, with Mary and Martha who weep at their brother's uh, death, and we have many accounts of Jesus also recording weeping. Tears are nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, they play a key part in the Christian walk and life. I think throughout history of faith, tears have been considered, in a sense, a grace to ask God for. That might seem a strange idea to us who prefer to have the happy, happy moments. But if you think about it, tears reveal an openness of heart towards God that God welcomes and desires to enter into with us. The shedding of tears reveals our fragility, reveals our vulnerability, it reveals our sin. And it's often that difficult for us. But it's exactly this being aware of our need to be open and vulnerable before God that the church throughout history has understood the shedding of tears to be an act of grace. For honest tears shared before God still have a transforming power to turn our deepest sorrows, our darkest places, into joy and light. They soften our hardness. They crumble our illusions of our own strength, our own independence, our, will, our desire to control all situations. Tears are a gift because they prepare our hearts to receive Jesus, our Saviour, who gave up his life on a cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins and set free. Tears unleash our humanity 
They show us our need for God. They remind us that we are small, powerless, and that we can do little on our own. They help us to see more clearly. And by doing so, they open up to us a much greater power, a divine power. The gift of tears bestow on our souls the capacity to see ourselves more clearly in relation to the wonder, the mercy, the the compassion, and the enduring love of God. Such tears bring new life. Not only do they soften our hearts and break up its hardness, they irrigate our souls and render it more fertile and able to hold more of God's love for this world. The heart watered with tears opens us up to become more Christ-like so that the sentiments and emotions of Christ become our sentiments and emotions. His feelings, ours, his compassionate nature, our very own. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Many times that road to purity of heart takes us through times of loss and suffering that render our love more full and more authentic and genuine. God can work at times for experiences of detachment and loss to remind us that he alone is the source of all life, that it is in him alone that we must learn to depend. No other person, no other man or woman, however close they are to you, can satisfy all your needs for love so completely or can cure the emptiness we cannot feel in our souls. Only with the awareness that God is the only one able to love us completely, unconditionally, will there finally be space necessary for rebirth and and love. God can allow painful situations, painful disconnections in our relationships as a means to offer us a greater freedom that renders a greater love possible. It's sometimes when we're in that valley, valley of sorrow that God surprises us and goes so far beyond our expectations in order to show us something much, much greater. He did this with Mary Magdalene. She was seeking the body of Jesus, the corpse of Jesus, which was nothing compared with what God wanted to give her, which was a new relationship with the living Christ. In her tears, the greatest desire of Mary was to find Jesus' corpse so that she could respectfully bury it. But this longing was far too small in God's eyes and was just simply limited by her understanding of reality. She didn't recognise Jesus in the garden because he wasn't a corpse. It prevented her initially from recognising the beauty and greatness of the reality standing right there before her as she mistook him for a gardener. She couldn't see Jesus, who she so desired, because she was convinced he could only be found as a corpse. Pope Francis once wrote these words, At times in our lives, the glasses we need to see Jesus are the glasses of tears. Maybe those tears of Mary Magdalene before the tomb were necessary to prepare her heart to receive the immense gift that God wanted to bestow upon her, that of becoming the first man or woman to see the risen Lord. Woman, why are you weeping? 
is a repeated question in this passage, a passage about the resurrection of Jesus. The two are there. A passage which is a pinnacle of the gospel narrative. So I think it's important, much as we are right to rejoice at Easter, it is important that we don't get so carried away with our celebrations that we miss Mary's tears of grief and tears that were, at the, towards the end, transformed into, into tears of joy, I'm sure. And what becomes the message of this woman as she returns to the other disciples? We read in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them all that he said to her. Might we, this Easter morning, know something more of that beautiful grace of tears of a contrite heart before God, preparing us too to see the risen Christ. And constantly, having met with him, might that propel us out into this world so that we can say to those we meet, I, I have seen the Lord. So maybe take note of this Easter Sunday of Mary's tears. Tears as great sorrow, but tears that were wiped away in the resurrection light of our Lord Jesus. I'm just going to read a passage, a short couple of verses from Romans, and just as a means way of closing. And I forgot my clicker, by the way. But there you go. There's the passage, Romans 8. Paul wrote, he said, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, and I put in brackets, including our tears, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If Easter teaches us anything, it should teach us these things. The worst thing that you've ever done cannot separate you from the love of God. Those habits that you wish you didn't have cannot separate you from the love of God. Those fears and doubts that you keep only to yourself cannot separate you from the love of God. Nothing in all of creation can do it. Nothing in space or time, not even death itself. God's love for you is unshakable. And in the cross we see that it will endure forever. So don't forget, so don't, so don't forget your shame is a sham. It's not of God. It's for God is love. So dry your tears. The Lord is risen. Happy Easter. God bless you. We're going to sing in a minute. I'm just going to lead us in a short prayer, if that's okay. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your spirit, for in our time, we know it's your spirit who opens your word and speaks to our own personal situation. Lord, thank you for your ministry amongst your people today. May we welcome you with open hearts, I pray, and rejoice with you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand to sing the splendour of the King, which has that refrain, How great is our God. Sing with me, How great is our God.
David Lucas is now going to come and lead the our prayers for others, our great God. Let us pray. On this Easter morning, we thank you again, Lord, for your love, your sacrifice, and your triumph that gives us new life both in that world of the future and also in the world we live in right now. 